Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and this is Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Well, today we begin an exciting series in the book of Exodus called God's Rescue Plan. So let's turn in our Bibles to Exodus chapter 1, verses 1 to 6, as Dr. Newfeld brings us a message titled, Deliverance from Bondage. Stories, well, the really good ones, they're all stories of deliverance. Count of Monte Cristo, story of a man falsely accused, locked into a dungeon for life. Pilgrim's Progress, that's the story of a man who wants to journey from the condemned city of man to the celestial city. Uncle Tom's Cabin, it's the story of a man in slavery seeking to be free. Don Quixote, the story of an aging man seeking glory and escape from his very boring and meaningless life. Homer's Iliad discusses the futility of the gods using human beings as playthings and so forth, and in each case, there's a theme. Things are not as they should be, and more so. Things need to change, and our hero, or the object of the story, needs to be delivered in some way. We all identify with great stories about deliverance because we all feel, in some fashion, that we're enslaved into something can be a bad marriage, it can be a boring life, you know, a great villain, or an oppressive government of some sort. And when the stories that carry these themes are really good stories, we feel in some way that they're talking about us. And indeed, they are talking about us. It's because even if we can't quite identify it, we have a vague sense that we're lost in sin and that the purpose for our creation has been removed from us. And oh, how we wish it were not so. And when a great story comes around that tells of someone who has as much in bondage as we feel in ourselves, and yet in some way they've escaped, well, we wonder, might it be possible for me to escape as well? See, I hope you see what I'm getting at. All the stories about deliverance remind us that there is some form of deliverance that we would so desperately love. But what is that deliverance? What does the real thing look like? Well, the story of Christ dying for our sins, delivering us from sin, death, Satan, the judgment to come, that's the story to which all good stories are but a faint shadow of the real and the genuine one. And here on this matter, there's one story of deliverance, the one in Exodus, that's a forerunner to the story of Christ. And of course, like the story of Christ, it's not just a novel, it's a genuine historical account. And so today, I'm introducing a five-week series to one of the greatest stories ever told. The series will take us from Israel in bondage to Israel leaving the land of bondage and why this real historical account is necessary for all of us if we are to understand the deliverance and the salvation that Jesus offers. So let's start with the introduction to this exciting book. It's the second book in our Bible, and at least in our English Bible, it's got the name Exodus. That's a title given to the book many years after it was written. It simply means exit. You know, if you go to Greece today and you're driving on a freeway and you're looking for an exit sign, just look for a sign that says Exodus. But the book didn't originally have that name. You know, find a Hebrew Bible and you'll find it called Shemot. That's a Hebrew word translated into English as names. (laughs) Why that unusual title? Well, it's not unusual at all. That's because the book of Exodus starts with the following sentence. These are the names of the sons of Israel. And so names is the first noun we find in the book, and hence we have a title to the book. Very well, but let's go with Exodus, the title we're familiar with. 
What's this book all about? I mean, perhaps it's best to see that the entire book is easily divided into two parts. The first part tells the story of God's rescue, his deliverance of his people from Egyptian slavery, and that covers chapters 1 to 19. And then the second part of the book from chapters 20 to 40, well, that describes the covenant that God made with Israel. Now, that's an interesting outline because, in a sense, the first part of the book tells us of the deliverance of a group of people from the oppression of the most powerful nation in the region at that time. And the second part tells us that this same group of people came to be the people of God. So, you know, the first part is the story of them as slaves to Egypt and Pharaoh. And the second, well, they become slaves to their God. And that does prefigure what it means to be a Christian. You know, at one time we were slaves to the world to the flesh, to the devil, and now we've become slaves to Christ. The first slavery was oppressive and dehumanizing. The second is, well, it's a dignifying, it's a liberating service. So let's get back to the book of Exodus and locate the book in real history. So what do we know about the history out of which this book was written? Well, 1 Kings 6 verse 1 says, In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. Now we know with a great deal of certainty that Solomon's reign lasted from 970 to 931 BC. And so if the first year of his reign is the year 970, then we know that the fourth year of his reign, the year that's mentioned in 1 Kings 6.1, that was the year 966 BC. Then the text goes on to say that the year 966, on that year, it had been at that time 480 years since Israel got out of Egypt. That would make the year of the Exodus to be the year 1446 BC. Okay, let's take it one step further. According to Exodus 7 verse 7, we read, Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Well now, All the events of the ten plagues all took place in one year, which simply by reading the book almost certainly is the case. And we know that Moses was exactly 80 years old in 1446 BC. That would mean that Moses was born, well, it's in the year 1526 BC. And that very basically is the beginning of the story of this book. This book then covers a period of time from 1526 BC all the way through to the time that Israel encamped at the foot of Mount Sinai. Let's give that another year. Let's make that 1445 BC. And that's the historical background of the book. We will, as we go along, need then to consider who exactly were the pharaohs that are mentioned in this book. We'll also consider, you know, anything that has to do with the time period that sheds light on the understanding of this book. But stop for a moment. You know, until the modern era, it was universally believed that Moses is the author of this book. It is thought that for three very good reasons. I mean, first, that's the claim the book makes. You want to check out Exodus 24, verse 4, as well as other places, where Moses claims authorship of the first five books of the Bible. Deuteronomy 31, verse 9. Then Moses wrote this law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi not unusual in that time period for an author to refer to himself in the third person as we find it here. The second reason we hold the Mosaic authorship is that Jewish tradition universally held this to be an authentic Mosaic document. And finally, no one less than Jesus himself believed it to be written by Moses. Over and over again, when quoting from the Pentateuch, 
or the first five books of the Bible, Jesus refers to them as written by Moses. He even calls the Ten Commandments given by God as written by Moses. And so historically, both in Judaism and by Jesus and the apostles, as well as throughout most of the history of the Christian church, Mosaic authorship was simply assumed. Now, in the last 100 years or so, that assumption has been challenged so much so that even some in the evangelical camp have either denied Mosaic authorship or have said, look, we don't know and it really doesn't matter. Well, most of the denial of Mosaic authorship, indeed, I think all of it, comes from something called source criticism. That's the idea that vocabulary differences and style differences, even some grammatical differences found in the text, represent different time periods. That's to say the final form, let's say, of Exodus. They say it's actually put together a great deal of time after Moses, and that Exodus isn't the product of Mosaic writing, but the product of a number of different authors, edited all later. The problem that almost all conservative scholars have with that way of thinking is that there's no evidence for that theory. And if it's a matter of using words differently or having variations in a text, it should be noted that a great many writers regularly use synonyms or regularly use various ways of expressing ideas or concepts. They do that to keep the reader engaged so that we, the readers, are going to continue to pay attention and even at times be caught off guard, not by a predictable routine of writing. And so there's no reason at all either to deny that the book of Exodus is written by Moses or that it describes a real historical situation, real history. But Exodus is more than simply recounting history. Moses is a historian to be sure, but he's also a leader and he's a prophet. A prophet will tell you what happened, or or in this case, what God did, but a prophet will do more. After telling what happened, he tells us what it means. He will reveal to us the purpose of God and his actions. And so this is the matter we must deal with when we start our study since Exodus is about what really happened, how God devastated Egypt with a series of 10 plagues, how he delivered Israel from slavery. And yet, having said that much, we need to add what it is that we should learn from this. Why is it so important that we learn about something that happened in 1446 BC in a part of the world far removed from where we live? That's what this book is all about. We often find ourselves consumed with never-ending to-do lists. Our feet and hands don't know how to be still, but God does not desire our productivity. He desires our heart. Back to the Bible Canada teaches the Bible, not just for information, but to nurture our relationship with God. We ought to know God, not simply know about God, but it takes intentional time to slow down and be with Him. To help you make this happen, Back to the Bible Canada and Dr. John have created a new 30-day devotional called Quiet Spaces, Volume 2. It's the next in the installment of the Quiet Spaces devotional. This devotional is free this month, and all you need to do is ask. So call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca to request your copy today. The worst possible way of viewing Exodus is through the prism of our contemporary experience. And I say that because of certain theology that has gained some popularity, and it's been called liberation theology. 
and it connects the book of Exodus with a matter of social justice. That is to say, according to liberation theologians, Exodus is all about calling out for justice for oppressed people groups, be they slaves or the economically oppressed, or even people who are oppressed because of their race, and some would argue because of their sexual orientation. And so theologians of this stripe will argue that Exodus is all about seeking freedom from people who are marginalized and those who are suffering. Look, as interesting as those subjects are, as appealing as is the fight for social justice for various people groups. Look, it's always wrong to start from our perspective and then read that perspective back into the book. Our task, rather, is to ask ourselves, what's the perspective of this book? So let's start with an important statement from Exodus. And here, I'm referring to Exodus 6, verse 6, where we have God speaking to Israel. He says, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. And so, yeah, the book is about redemption from slavery by the hand of God. But here we need to ask, what's the nature of that deliverance? By the time we get to Exodus chapters 19 and 20, we're going to see that God has brought Israel to to the foot of Mount Sinai, which we are told is the mountain of God. And there God enters into a covenant with them. There to keep the Ten Commandments, the law of God. Indeed, the repeated word that's given to Pharaoh, who holds Israel in slavery, is not, you know, stop abusing these oppressed people. Indeed, in no fewer than seven times in this book, Pharaoh is told, let my people go that they may serve me. That is, they're slaves to Pharaoh, but this people do not belong to Pharaoh. They belong to God. They're called upon not to serve Pharaoh, but to serve God. Indeed, Exodus can't be read on its own. It's meant to be the second in a series of five books. And the first book is Genesis, in which we learn of a man named Abraham, who's been chosen by God to be the conduit of blessing to the whole world. But Abraham has also been told that God's making a covenant with him. Abraham is to leave his country and to go to the land that God will show him. And in consequence, God will make of Abraham a great nation and God will give to that great nation the land he will show him. Exodus is the fulfillment of that covenant promise of God. The point of the book is that when God makes a promise or a covenant, no one can break it, not even the powerful king of Egypt, the greatest power in the world. And that becomes significant for us who read it today. The one who makes a covenant with us is the one who did it in Jesus. And when we're called to belong to God through Jesus, nothing can break that bond. As Paul said so well in in Romans 8, 38 and 39, for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so when those who are in covenant with God through Jesus face demons or they face death, the same God who kept his promise to Israel will also keep his promise to us. Look, the book of Exodus has a number of other theological themes that run through the book. Another theme in this book is that God's people have a real knowledge of God. As we already saw from Exodus 6, verse 6, God says, I am the Lord your God. I mean, over and over again, the phrase, I am the Lord your God, gets said. It's God's self-disclosure to his people. God's making himself known. 
If anything is to mark the people of Israel is that they are the people who have seen God at work. They have become his people. Indeed, in the last book of Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 4, verse 7, a question is asked, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? Indeed, that's the issue. We're invited in the book of Exodus to see a nation called by God, and we see a God who is determined to make himself known to his people. And here again, we see the immediate point of application to all followers of Christ today. It's through Christ that God makes himself known to us. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6. For God, who has said, let light shine out of darkness, has shone in our hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Yeah, in Christ, we have received a revelation of God. Now, a third piece of the theological puzzle in Exodus is to identify Israel. Israel, we are told, is unique. And how? Again, go to Deuteronomy, and here I'm reading Deuteronomy 7, 6 to 8. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. That is, listen, God chose you not because he saw anything noteworthy in you. Rather, he chose you because of the covenant he made with Abraham. Again, New Testament believers find that heartening. We've not become the people of God because of anything we've done or because of any significance we might have. Rather, we're the people of God because God the Father has set his affections on the Son, Christ Jesus, and we are redeemed because God the Father honors the redemption of his Son. I mean, there's so much to be said about that. But for now, this will do. And with that introduction to Exodus, let's jump into the opening of the book. Exodus 1, 1 to 6. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And with these opening words to this book, we are intended to tie this book to the book of Genesis. Look, in essence, it's the drama that's found in Genesis that frames everything that we find in Exodus. Exodus can't be understood if one starts with the book of Exodus. Rather, we must start with the book of Genesis. And Genesis is the story, first of God and second of his creation, and third of the crown of his creation, that is humankind. But Adam, our father, rebelled against the purposes of God and set the world into ruin. But eventually God would choose one man, Abraham, and through his family to restore a portion of the human race. Abraham had a son, Isaac, the child of promise. Isaac had one son, Jacob, and again, the inheritor of the promise made to Abraham. Jacob's name was then changed to Israel, and his children would become the fulfillment of the promise. But as we trace the story in Genesis, we find that instead of being a distinct people to God, Jacob's children are being assimilated into Canaanite culture so that if things carry on as they seem to be, the promise made to Abraham would come to nothing. But then something happened, which at first glance seems like just another incident in a family that's falling apart. 
His brothers sell Joseph into slavery. But then, through a series of events, Joseph becomes the second most powerful man in Egypt. And then, Joseph saves his own family from starvation in a famine that's raging in Canaan. Through Joseph, the entire family is saved. But also, because of this, two other things happen. The Egyptians, unlike the Canaanites, were unwilling to assimilate with that family of Israel. And so in Egypt, Israel became a distinct set-apart people of God. But then a second thing happened. Through Joseph, the family of Israel would inhabit some of the best land in Egypt, and eventually Israel would grow and flourish in Egypt, but this would in itself lead to its own difficulties. Eventually, as we will see, it will lead to slavery and oppression and will necessitate that Israel will be forced to think not according to the land of Egypt, but rather according to the promise that God made to Abraham. And so Exodus is part two in the story of how God claimed a people to himself. Now, one more feature. It seems likely to me that Moses wrote all these events down near the end of his life, although he would have been gathering them all throughout his life. But he writes this to a generation that didn't see these events. And Moses knows that if Israel ever forgets these events, they're going to forget that they are the chosen people of God who have been redeemed by the strong hand of their God. It's the same with us today. We too need to remember who we are. For if we forget, we will never know that when Jesus reached out to save us, we were then the people that were lost in slavery to sin, slavery to Satan, slavery to the principles of this world. We, New Testament Christians, were saved in a way far more dramatic even than the story of Exodus. But Exodus is necessary for us to understand our own story. Thanks so much, John. Uh, You know, I noted that you mentioned social justice. And I'm assuming that you don't have an issue with the pursuit of justice, particularly with those being oppressed in some way. But I suspect what you're saying is that this isn't the critical point of Exodus. Yeah, exactly, Ben. Of course, the Bible has so much to say about justice and the treatment of others. I mean, our God is a gracious God, and he demands that we treat one another with fairness and equity. You know, having said that, um, this we must not um, make the Bible say what we want to say. We've got to read it on its own terms. And this is the story of deliverance from bondage to sin and that the slavery, especially when we come to the New Testament, takes upon itself the entire, you know, the imagery that that sin itself is a very cruel bondage and no one can deliver us except that the Son of God did it. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us again tomorrow as we continue our series, God's Rescue Plan, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, Bible teaching you can trust. Back to the Bible Canada's mission is to provide Bible teaching you can trust in every medium possible to break down any barriers from spending time in God's Word. So check out all the Bible resources available online, video, print, radio, podcast, and CD. And it's our prayer that anybody who tunes in finds encouragement in their spiritual journey. We want to guide you back to your Bibles. All of this is made possible through the faithful support of our listeners. If you would like to make a financial contribution to this ministry, or even consider blessing us with a reoccurring monthly gift to help propel the Word of God across Canada and beyond, 
just call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebiblecanada.ca. And thanks so much for your support.